Go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And to begin today, uh, we're going to just look at the first half of that verse uh, as we continue our study of the Christian Sabbath. This morning, our theme uh, will be the change of the Sabbath day from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, also called the Lord's Day. Um, So far, we've been considering the, the Sabbath mainly from the Old Testament scriptures, But obviously today we're turning forward to the New Testament. Um, In considering the Old Testament scriptures on on this doctrine, I've been arguing, or I've been trying to, uh, argue for the perpetuity of the command to keep a Sabbath, or that is the continual nature of the Sabbath command. Uh, But now, today we're going to move on to consider the Christianization of the day, as uh, was A.W. Pink put it that way, the Christianization of the day. As most of you know, Something major has happened since the days of the Old Testament. The New Testament, right? The new covenant in Christ has come. And with that covenant, a new day of worship has been instituted. And you already know this because we're meeting today instead of yesterday. (laughs) We're gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday, instead of the last day of the week, Saturday. Therefore, we say that we observe the Christian Sabbath day and not the Jewish Sabbath day. As the, if I could paraphrase the author of the the book of Hebrews, with a change in covenants has come a change of the law. And with that change, this is my bit, comes a change in the day. But some people claim that there is no biblical command to worship on the first day of the week. I've dealt with these people before. Uh, They and others will also claim that there is no Sabbath to be kept for Christians. That's no surprise. But even more, some very extreme people Even some of them are fairly educated. Some extreme people will claim that there is no appointed regularity for Christian worship. That is, there is no Sabbath, so there is no particular day to meet, and therefore there is no pattern for reoccurrence, or rather pattern of reoccurrence for worship. Which is basically, you don't have to go to church every week. You can kind of go to church whenever you want. Um, That's nonsense. The New Testament teaches something different. Though it does not explicitly tell us that the Sabbath day changed, there are indicators, right? There are things that point to that. We have the example of the apostles, the language they used about the first day of the week, the nature of apostolic authority, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the background of the entire Old Testament that all point us to there being a Sabbath for today. All that is to say, there's a lot of stuff to consider about a Sabbath day under the New Covenant. And I intend to show you some of it this morning, though by no means will this sermon be exhaustive. Um, And a brief note here, because I know some of you. To those who demand an explicit text saying that the Sabbath day has changed to Sunday, I'm going to tell you on the front end, this sermon will not give you what you want. There is no such text in the scriptures that just explicitly says, and the day has changed. But such a demand is unbiblical. Hear me, we do not need explicit statements in Scripture for everything that we believe or do. We simply don't. Implications of texts, as the Westminster Confession says, good and necessary consequence. As our confession says, things that are, um, oh, I'm blanking on it, necessarily contained in the Scriptures and necessary deductions from texts are valid to establish doctrine and practice. 
You say, how do you know that? How do you know the inferences, implications, deductions, right? How do you know that that can be legitimate? Uh, Because Jesus did it. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus argued from Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 to establish the resurrection of the dead. And guess what? If you don't know your Old Testament that well, Exodus 3, 6 is not explicitly talking about the resurrection of the dead. Our Lord himself argues from implications of Exodus 3, 6 to establish the resurrection. So then I submit to you, we can do the same because Jesus teaches us how to use and interpret the Bible. Furthermore, there are many central doctrines in our faith that we must get from implications and good and necessary consequences of texts. Show me a verse that says God's a trinity. I'll give you all the money I got. It doesn't exist. Show me a verse that says Jesus is fully God and fully man. There is no such verse that says that explicitly. We get those doctrines, the trinity and the hypostatic union of Christ, we get those by deduction. We look at all that the scripture says about God and Christ, and then we connect the dots and we harmonize it all. I say that to say this. To demand an explicit text for the Christian Sabbath, or you won't believe it, will lead you to heresy and a denial of the faith if you apply that same standard to other doctrines. It will. Please don't do that. (laughs) Like, please don't do that. Um, Brothers and sisters, we must think through the scriptures. You have to think. We must think deeply on everything that the Bible says about everything. And the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath is no different. So brothers and sisters, I've been setting forth in this series that the Sabbath command continues today. But under the new covenant, the day has changed from the seventh day to the first day. That is the assertion of our confession. That is the assertion of our forefathers in the faith. And most importantly, that is the revelation of the word of God. And so my goal this morning is to demonstrate that the day has changed and then briefly explain how we know that and why this has happened. May God put his blessing on the preaching of his word. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10a, just the first half. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's day that we can assemble to sit under your Word, read, preached, sung, prayed, and seen in the sacrament. We ask now that by your Spirit, you would make the Word effectual to our salvation and our sanctification. Open our hearts to receive the pure Word of God. Help us to humble ourselves before your word, so that we might receive it with all faith and gladness. Let us see from your word that this is the day that you have made for us to rejoice and be glad in. Help us to see Christ, the Lord of the Lord's day, as we look into your word this morning. Sanctify us by your truth. Glorify yourself in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So in Revelation 1.10, again, I'll read it. It's very short. The Apostle John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Let me say this right out of the gates. Clearly, a day belongs to the Lord. A day belongs to the Lord under the new covenant. John says so. And that Lord is the same Lord that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. 
That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day that belongs to Jesus. Now all days are His, for He is Lord of all. I get so tired of people saying, what do you mean that there's a Christian Sabbath? All days belong to God. Well, do all meals belong to God? Yes, but is there such a thing as the Lord's Supper? Yep. So there's such a thing as the Lord's Day. John explicitly says, there is a day that uniquely and specially belongs to Jesus Christ. Lord willing, we'll see this more later in the sermon, but I wanted to start with these brief comments to get your wheels turning. I hope they're already turning as you consider this basic truth. You've heard for three weeks now that God has always had a day that belongs to him. From the beginning of the creation to the end of the old covenant, God had a day that belonged specially to him. And now, with the new covenant to the end of the world, John tells us there's a day that belongs to Jesus Christ, who is Lord and God over all. Brothers and sisters, that is significant. That is significant. There are parallels already. But now to dive in more deeply and, and to do a, a bit of review, let's consider some of the, rather, let, let, let's review some things as we consider the Sabbath day changing from the seventh day of the, of the week to the first day. First, I just want to just review. How do we know that a Sabbath remains for Christians? First, we've seen in Sermon 1 that the Sabbath was instituted at creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. On the seventh day of the world's existence, God created the Sabbath day, put his blessing on it, and set it apart for holy uses. That is, worship. And what God makes holy, man must keep holy. So from the beginning of the world, there has been a Sabbath for human beings to keep holy to the Lord. And this means that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Right? The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. And those things that are ordained or instituted at creation continue to be normative and binding on us today. If you read the New Testament, things in creation are argued as still applying. Male headship, heterosexuality, labor, procreation, marriage. These things are all creation ordinance ordinances that still apply to us today. So then we ought to believe that the command to keep one day in seven that was instituted at creation continues today. Second, by way of review, we've seen that the Sabbath is part of the unchanging moral law of God. He gave it to us in the Ten Commandments, which are the summary of his moral will for mankind. God spoke these commandments with his own mouth. He wrote them with his own finger. He wrote them on tablets of stone and had them placed in his throne. So then the Ten Commandments are not like the other laws found in the Old Testament because God never did that with any of the other laws in the Old Testament. And the commandment to keep the Sabbath is right smack dab in the middle of the ten. It's actually the bridge between the two tables. So then we conclude that the command to keep one day in seven holy to the Lord continues today just like the rest of the other ten commandments. Third, we saw last week in Isaiah 56 that even the prophets spoke of the Sabbath being kept during the New Covenant era. That is, catch the significance of this, even when all of the Old Covenant ceremonial laws were to be done away with because the New Covenant had come, the Sabbath would still remain, though it would be Christianized under the New Covenant. So then, with all of that in our minds, we should go into the New Testament. Please hear me. We should go into the New Testament assuming that the command to keep a Sabbath continues. If you deny that, you have to deal with those three things and a whole lot more that I didn't say. We should go in assuming that the day continues. 
There is nothing in the scriptures that suggests that the Sabbath would one day come to an end. There are hints that certain things in the Old Covenant would end. The priesthood, sacrifices, cleanliness laws, and all that stuff. But all that we've seen so far tends toward the view that the Sabbath will remain as long as human history does. So again, we should have an assumption that it continues. A second thing here, and this is good for review. How do we know that the Sabbath day can change? Because again, that's a sticking point for a lot of people, and I wanted to address it again. They'll say, how can the day change but the law remain? We know that the Sabbath day was to be, uh, rather that the day was to be kept, the day it was to be kept on was always subject to change as God willed it. You'll remember, some of you tuned out a couple of weeks ago. I could see it in your face because I I do watch you. Uh, You guys remember the distinction between moral laws and positive laws. Pretend, because I'm about to tell you again. Moral laws are unchanging and can be known from the light of nature and human reason. But positive laws cannot be known by men unless God explicitly reveals them. And positive laws, because they are not moral, can be taken away if God wills it. Ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant with the sacrificial system, positive laws. They, we would never known that they were, the Jews were supposed to do that unless God told them. Judicial laws and punishments under the Old Covenant, those are positive laws. They could be repealed, and we know that both the ceremonial and judicial were repealed. They did go away. And the command to keep the Sabbath is a moral positive law. That is, its substance is moral, but its application is positive. Let's have me hash that out briefly. We know instinctively that God should be worshipped. This is natural law. God should be worshipped. And what else do we know? If you're going to worship him, you've got to make time to worship him. You can't do more than one thing at one time. You have to make time to worship him. And during that time of worship, you must set aside what you would ordinarily do at that time. That is, rest from your labors and recreations in order to worship. That is the moral substance of the second commandment. That's the moral substance of the second commandment. And all men know this from nature and human reason. But, positive law, positive aspect of the law, we do not know the particular day that we should worship on or how long we should do so unless God shows us. And God revealed at creation, he revealed the answer. One day in seven, positive, or rather, one day in seven belongs to the Lord for worship. And God positively chose the seventh day. But it being a positive institution, there is nothing intrinsically moral about that day. Right? The, the day to be observed for worship is not, catch this, the day to be observed is not the substance of the Sabbath command. It is the positive application of the moral substance. So then, since the day itself is not the moral issue of the commandment, but rather one day in seven being devoted to God is the substance, we know that the day could always change if God chose to change it. So then, the day can change, but the Sabbath command itself remains. A lot of review. Thanks for sticking with me. Here's the question, though. Has God changed the day? Has God changed the day? Let's think about that now. Has he changed the day? That's the theme of this sermon. I believe the word of God shows us that God's appointed day for rest and worship has changed under the new covenant. And God has revealed this to us 
First, I want to consider two things. Apostolic example. God has revealed this by apostolic example. First, turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Actually, you know what? I can give you my notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outrun you on most of these passages. So if you get there, great. If you don't, that's fine. I can give you my notes later. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Luke writes, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. He actually preached so long, it goes on to tell us that a dude fell asleep sitting in a window, fell out and died, and Paul had to raise him from the dead. I've never preached that long. You'll be fine. But Luke records in the preceding verses to Acts 20, verse 7, that he and Paul had sailed to an area called Troas, and there they stayed for seven days. But on the first day of the week, there was a gathering. What was this gathering? Luke says they gathered together in order to break bread. Now that is significant. I don't believe that this is an ordinary meal. It's, it's just real quick, especially because he tells you what day they did it on. Because like you eat every day. So if we met on this day to break bread, there seems to be something more significant here. And you know the breaking of bread has theological significance in the New Testament. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Breaking bread in a Christian sense is to partake of the Lord's Supper, and that only happens within a gathering of the church. Acts 2.42 says something similar. And they, referring to the new converts in Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Worship is in view in Acts 2.42. The new Christians devoted themselves to what the apostles taught and the fellowship of the church as well as prayer. These are all church-related things. They're all things related to doctrine and worship. So then, that it, it, it's mentioned that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread indicates that they devoted themselves to receiving and celebrating the Lord's Supper along with prayer, fellowship within the church, and the teachings of the apostles. So remembering those things, 1 Corinthians 10, Acts 2, remembering those things when we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that the, that the Christians met to break bread, we should understand this as a worship service. They met together to remember and receive Christ at the table, as we're going to do later. And what else happened? The apostle preached to them. I'm not trying to, I'm not insulting anyone's intelligence. Brothers and sisters, there was preaching and also the celebration of the Lord's Supper. What is that? That is a Christian worship service. This is a church service we're reading about in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And on what day did this occur? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together. Notice in verse 6 also, Paul had even waited seven days in order to speak to all the brothers. Now, why would he wait seven days? I think the reasonable answer is that the first day of the week was the day that the whole church met. And Paul wanted to address the whole church. So even though, and you can read the rest of the chapter, Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But nevertheless, he waits a whole week in Troas. Even though he's in a hurry, he waits a whole week. Why? Because that's when they're all going to be together. 
That's the first day of the week. That is the day for Christian worship. The believers in Troas observed the day, and the apostle Paul observed the day. And this means right off the bat, and we'll get to this more later, Lord willing, right off the bat, observing the first day of the week as the day for Christian worship has apostolic practice and approval. That is a huge deal. That is a huge deal. But next, another apostolic example. Really, it's a command. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Some context for you. There was a collection being taken up among the churches to help the poor saints in Jerusalem who were dealing with a horrible famine. I think it's the same famine Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. There'll be famines. It's one of the famines, at least. And Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Notice that the apostle commands something here. As I directed or as I commanded the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. This is a command with apostolic authority. The believers in Corinth were to gather together and put their money into a common treasury. How do I know it's a common treasury? So that there will be no collecting when I come. That's what Paul says. So they're meeting together to put all their money together. Do we do that? Well, before the advent of internet giving, we still got a box in the back. right? We gather together and put our money together. And Paul says, do it on the first day of the week. Now, why would Paul choose that day? I think the reasonable answer is because they were already going to gather on that day. And Paul knew it. So when they gather, they should pull their money together for the saints in Jerusalem. And notice this. This weekly gathering was a recurring thing. On the first day of every week, Paul says, on the first day of every week, this was at the ordinary day for Christians to gather. That's what makes the most sense of this text. Also, notice the universality of this practice. Or if you want to sound fancy, the Catholicity of this practice. Paul says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. The churches of Galatia were gathering on the first day of the week. So we see that this is not something unique to the Corinthian Christians. The Galatians were doing it too. Again, there is a Catholicity to Christians gathering on the first day of the week. We saw it happen in Troas in Acts chapter 20. And now we read that the Corinthians were supposed to meet on the first day of the week, and the Galatians were commanded to do so as well. Again, there's universality here. Also, it's good to note, if you look at a map, Troas, Galatia, and Corinth weren't just like a mile down the road from each other. Like, this isn't like a small region. Like, oh, that was like their regional church practice. Like, they're pretty far spaced apart. There's like water between some of them, <laughs> right? So this is, this is spaced out. This practice is not regional. This is a church-wide practice for Christians. So once again, we see apostolic approval and even assumption when you're gathered. We see assumption about Christians in many regions gathering on the first day of the week. Under the eye and direction of the apostles, this was the practice of the church. Third, 
We turn now from, apost- from apostolic example to consider apostolic language about the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what day would that be? What day is the Lord's day? What's interesting, this, this, is, this actually used to stump me a little bit until I started studying the, the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. What's interesting is that John doesn't identify what day the Lord's day is. He doesn't. Nowhere in the book of Revelation does he tell you what particular day of the week it is. He just says, it's the Lord's day. Why is that interesting for us to note? John assumes his readers know what he's talking about. And he's writing to seven different churches in Asia Minor. He expects them to know. Right? Like if I stood up and said, the Lord, you all know who I'm talking about, even if I don't say the Lord Jesus. You know who the Lord is. In the same way, John is saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's as if, I'm going to be a little little smart here for a minute, it's as if this was a common designation for a particular day of the week within the church that you just should know if you're a Christian. It's the Lord's day. Listen, if we're to interpret Scripture using Scripture, because we need to figure out what is he talking about. If we're to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, we need to look at all the places in the New Testament where the first day of the week is mentioned. Now, I have done that already. I'm not going to list all of them for you this morning because we don't have time. But let me start with this. Wouldn't you know it, the first day of the week is referenced in every single gospel. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. The first day of the week is the day that our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And it's actually one of the only days that gets mentioned. Like the particular day of the week. It's interesting. This seems to be important for us to know and remember since it's so often repeated. This this was the day that our Lord was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness when he was resurrected from the dead, as Paul says in Romans 1.4. This was the day, the first day of the week, that Christ trampled down sin, Satan, and death by overcoming them all in his resurrection. So then, I think it's reasonable to conclude that the data from the Gospels already lends itself to identifying the first day of the week with the risen Lord. So it makes sense, again, to identify the Lord's day as that day. But moving beyond the fact that the first day was the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead, do you know some other interesting things, some glorious things happen on the first day of the week in the New Testament? We read in John chapter 20, verse 19, and John chapter 21, verse 1 that Jesus met with his disciples multiple times on the first day of the week after his resurrection. Dare I say with it, the risen Lord gathered with his people on the first day of the week. Surely this would have stuck out to the disciples as a particularly holy day. It was the day that the risen Lord met with them. First day of the week, he meets with them, not once, but at least twice. Furthermore, this, this kind of blew my mind when I was studying this a couple of years ago. It was the first day of the week that the risen Lord Jesus sent his spirit upon his church at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 tells us that the spirit fell upon the disciples on the first day of Pentecost at the beginning of the festival. And Leviticus chapter 23 verse 15 that tells us about Pentecost tells us that the festival began on the 50th day after the Sabbath. That is Sunday. That is the first day of the week. 
So from heaven, the risen and exalted and ascended Lord Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. After being raised on a Sunday. After meeting with his disciples multiple times on a Sunday. Taking all of this together, we see that the first day of the week is consistently the day that Jesus was undeniably revealing himself to be the Lord. He displayed his power and love as the risen, reigning, glorious Lord of heaven and earth on the first day of the week multiple times in the New Testament scriptures. Therefore, the day is rightly called the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. But to take it even further, there are extra biblical writings. It is writings outside of the Bible. Soon after the New Testament was finished, that call Sunday the Lord's Day. Do you know the first Christian document we have outside of the Bible? It's called the Didache. It's also a credo-baptist document, but we won't get into that this morning. Just put that in your head. In the Didache, it was written between A.D. 80 and 120, and it calls the first day of the week the Lord's Day. This is, this is on the heels of the Bible being finished. Second, Ignatius, writing between 107 and 116, calls Sunday the Lord's Day. Slightly later, Dionysius in 170, and also Tertullian in 200, calls Sunday the Lord's Day as well. Furthermore, this... This is interesting. There was never any real dispute in the early church as to what day uh, that John was referring to in Revelation 1.10. At least not to my knowledge. And if you know much about church history, everyone fought over everything. But like the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that's, that's just an interesting thing to note. That like they didn't fight about that. So again, there's never any real dispute. The first day of the week, Sunday, is the Lord's Day. And that is the day for Christian worship. If that's not the case, then you have to admit that this verse is actually impossible for you to understand. right? And you'll have to admit that you have no idea what John's talking about here while also ignoring a mountain of evidence. So the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, rather the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Now consider with me for a moment what it means that this day is the Lord's Day. It means that the first day of the week I feel like I'm insulting your intelligence. It means that it belongs to the risen Lord Jesus. Apostrophe S, possessive. It is. It means that he claims the day for himself. And that he claims it himself. John calls it the Lord's day. And he, is John writing on his own? No. John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit reveals whatever Jesus gives to him to reveal. Where do I get that from? John 16, 14. Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So if under inspiration John is saying, it's the Lord's day, that means that Jesus had given to the Spirit to tell him, that's my day. John's not making this up is what I'm getting at. This isn't just a thing that John thought would be, oh, it's nice to call it the Lord's Day. No, under inspiration, he's saying it is Jesus's because Jesus claims it. Brothers and sisters, this is, the Lord's Day is not a human institution. It is divinely revealed. Jesus Christ himself claims the day for himself. 
And again, we know from texts we've already examined that this day is for worshiping the risen Lord. So then in summary so far, the day of worship changed under the new covenant from the Saturday Jewish Sabbath to the Christian Lord's Day. Now at this point, some of you may say, as I used to, well, sure, the day for worship is Sunday. I agree with you. But that does not mean that it's a Sabbath. The day of worship changed, but that does not necessarily mean that it is a Sabbath like the Jews had to keep in the Old Testament. I want to answer that now. That's a fair objection. I mean this. Like, I'm not trying to insult anyone. That's a, that's a good objection. I want to now show you that the language of the Lord's day, just that, three words, the Lord's day, that language tells us that this is a Sabbath. I could get into Hebrews 4. That's probably for another day. I'm not smart enough to go through that right now, I don't think. But I just want to focus on the Lord's day as a phrase. Tells us that it is a Sabbath and not just a day for worshiping for two or three hours and then doing your own will for the rest of the day. I think that, all the, that it is a Sabbath is packed in those three words, the Lord's day. I want to now help you think through that phrase and what it entails. The language of the Lord's Day has striking parallels to the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's ridiculous. First, we know that it was forbidden to treat the Sabbath day like other days of the week. You had to keep it holy. The day was holy. Why was it holy? Because it belonged to the Holy One. It belonged to God. And now we're told in Revelation 1.10 that a day uniquely belongs to Jesus. Do you see the parallel already? As I said in the beginning, all days are his, generically speaking, but this day is his in a particular way. The fact that it is the Lord's day and not your day tells us that you are not permitted to regard it or treat it like the other days of the week. And that means, to steal um, Sam Waldron's language, that the Lord's day has a sabbatical nature to it. It's different from the other days. That's how the Sabbath was in the Old Testament, a day different. Second, in the original language of Revelation 1.10 in the Greek, there is a particular form, rather a particular possessive form of Lord. And this kind of possessive for Lord is found in only one other place in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. And there we read, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The Lord's Supper is the only grammatical parallel in the Bible to the Lord's Day. What does that tell us? Just like the Supper belongs to Jesus, Sunday belongs to Jesus. And what do we know about the Supper? Please follow me on this. This was big for me. It is a meal that uniquely belongs to Jesus. It is not like other meals. It is holy and must be regarded as holy. Two, it is a meal that was instituted by Jesus Christ himself and is to be observed by all Christians until the end of the world. Third, it is a meal that is exclusively for religious use. You cannot eat this. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper like it's your dinner. It is for exclusively religious use. And lastly, it's a meal that is intended to be a blessing from Christ 
to his people that he uses to sanctify them. Brothers and sisters, it seems that there should be an understanding that what belongs to Jesus in a unique way carries these same marks. That is, what is true of the Lord's Supper is then true of the Lord's Day because they are both uniquely His. So there are parallels between them. The Lord's Day is a day that uniquely belongs to Christ and is to be kept holy to the Lord. The Lord's Day was instituted by Christ to be observed to the end of the world. It is a day for exclusively religious use, and it is meant to be a blessing from Christ to his people that he uses us or that he uses to sanctify us. Brothers and sisters, these are all Sabbath themes in the Old Testament. They're all Sabbath themes. So then, we conclude that the Lord's Day is a Sabbath, but I'm not done. Third, the day clearly belongs to Jesus. And the language of a day belonging to Jesus mirrors the Old Testament language about the Sabbath. Isaiah 58:13 says, "If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable." The Sabbath was God's day. We all know that. Fun fact, there are, there are 16 times in the Old Testament where God refers to my Sabbaths. There are 5 times where the Sabbath of the Lord or the Sabbath of God is mentioned. And there are three times that a Sabbath unto the Lord is mentioned. What I want you to see is that God always calls the Sabbath His day, His particular day. Furthermore, remember that Jesus in Mark 2 claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, for He is God incarnate. So the Sabbath is Jesus' day. And in Revelation 1.10, we're told Jesus is the Lord of the first day of the week. And might I remind you, he is Lord of the whole day and not just a portion of it. John does not call it, he doesn't say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's morning. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Brothers and sisters, this is the essence of the Sabbath. Again, I'm stealing this from Sam Waldron. A, a day for God, a day of God, a day belonging to God. The Lord's day is therefore of the same essence as the Sabbath. It is a day for Christ, a day of Christ, in a day belonging to Christ, who is God Almighty. In the Old Testament, again, God had a Sabbath. In the New Testament, the Son of God has the Lord's Day. The concept is the same. We're still not done. Fourth, the Lord's Day is a holy day. How do you know that? Jesus is holy. Right? Because Jesus is God and has claimed the day for himself. He has set it apart for himself by declaring it to be his day. And for something to be set apart for God, by God, is for the thing to be made holy. The Lord's day, therefore, is holy. If anyone wants to dispute this, quick question for you. Can God claim something for himself and it remain common or profane? No. So then, this day is holy. And if it is holy, it is to be kept holy. We are not allowed to profane holy things. And how do we keep a day holy? Praise God, we have the fourth commandment to tell us. By abstaining from our ordinary works and devoting the day to worshiping God. Fifth, notice, this is really simple, the, the re weekly recurrence of the Lord's Day. The Sabbath was the same way. 
right? It, it, it's, it's coming back around again next week. You know what I'm saying? Like it's every seven days, just like the Sabbath. Th- that is a glaring similarity between them that is not easily dismissed. If the Lord's day is not meant to be understood as a Sabbath day for Christians, then why does it happen over and over again on the same exact clock as the Sabbath? Sixth, and lastly, and then we'll get into something else. The Lord's day is clearly used for worship. Again, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, and even here in Revelation 1, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What is that? He's worshiping Christ. Even private worship, because he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. All three of these uses of the first day of the week, the day is for worship. And biblically speaking, catch this, this is big. Biblically speaking, a day for worship is a Sabbath. Read the Old Testament. When God makes a day a day for special worship, you have to stop working all the time. That's what you read all the time. And again, natural law. In order to worship, you have to cease from your labors and your recreation. So then, a day for worshiping Jesus, by biblical definition, is a Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, the parallels are too strong to ignore especially when you remember all we've learned so far from the Old Testament about the Sabbath as moral law and a creation ordinance. The Lord's Day, therefore, is the Christian Sabbath. But now a new question emerges. Right? Questions, answers, just more questions. Who changed the day? Whose idea was it? I've already kind of answered this, but I want to do it explicitly. Some people say that the church did it by common consent. That's a really common answer. Even some of the early reformers argued that. The church changed the day by common consent, and therefore the day is not a Sabbath and can be changed or altered however each congregation chooses. Others say that the apostles came up with the idea by themselves, and therefore the Lord's Day is a merely human institution that can be amended or done away with. I don't believe either of those answers are biblically or theologically justifiable. I believe in the regulative principle of worship. Most of you do as well. God orders his worship. The second commandment forbids us to worship God in any way other than he commands. And the most basic part of worship is when you do it. That's the most basic part of it. So God himself must instruct us. So again, I don't believe human beings just get to pick the day. You didn't get to pick the day under the old covenant. You think God's changed? You don't just get to pick something. Well, let's consider the apostles for a moment. You know, they had universal authority over the church. Whatever they did or said carried the weight of command. If they did or sanctioned something, it was for the church to observe and imitate. How do I know that? Because they're apostles. Let's think about the nature of an apostle. The word apostolos means sent ones. That is, they are messengers sent by one with greater authority than they have. And being sent, they carry all the authority of the one who sent them. Right? They act with the authority of the sender. That is the definition of an apostle. Right? By the way, apostles, that's a generic term. It's whenever Jesus made them apostles, it became a special term. But that ordinarily in Greek could just mean he's just a messenger who's been sent by someone with greater authority. So when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of the one who sent him. So who then sent the apostles of the church? (coughs) Jesus. So when they are acting in their office of apostle, 
They are car- when they're dealing with church matters, they carry all the authority of Jesus Christ himself. These men had no authority on their own. Again, they were apostles. So then, whenever we see them institute, command, or approve something, it must be instituted, command, or approved of by the risen Lord Jesus Christ in some way, or they would have no authority to do this. And what do we see them doing? We see them observing the first day of the week and approving it. We see them commanding the church to assemble on that day. We see them worshiping on that day. And we see them calling that day the Lord's Day. So then we conclude that their example, language, and command comes from Christ himself. By resistless logic, the Lord's Day must have been ordained and commanded by Jesus. It simply must have or the apostles wouldn't have had the authority to do it. Furthermore, and this one just made me laugh. How would John even dare, like just dare to call the day the Lord's day unless Jesus himself had told him, that's mine. That would be impious to the highest degree to say something on behalf of Christ that he didn't say. Brothers and sisters, the apostles sacralized the day. We therefore must conclude that the Sabbath day was changed because the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, changed it and revealed the change to his apostles. But now one last question, why? Why the change? What is the rationale? Why did Jesus change the day? I've been preaching to your minds on 